والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه أما بعد فعن النواس بن سمعان رضي الله عنهما عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال البر حسن الخلق والإثم ما حاك في نفسك وكرهت أن يطلع عليه الناس رواه مسلم وعن وابس بن معبد رضي الله عنه قال أتيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال جئت تسأل عن البر قلت نعم قال استفتي قلبك البر ما البر ما اطمأنت إليه النفس واطمأن إليه القلب والإثم ما حاك في النفس وتردد في الصدر وإن أفتاك الناس وأفتوك حديث صحيح رويناه في مسندي الإمامين أحمد بن حمل والدارم بإسناد حسن Alhamdulillah, we're continuing with the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi. For every Muslim, we should all have and know some of the hadith of the Prophet All of us should know and have certain verses of the Qur'an that inspire us, certain verses of the Qur'an that motivate us in life. And I've probably talked about this more than a hundred times, but there's something that I see in Christians I don't see that much in Muslims which is unfortunate. But I say this and some of the people don't like for me to say it. But from my perspective, you know, that's, that's our fault that we don't have enough self-criticism. We don't criticize ourselves that enough. If there's something that is khair, good in somebody else, and we don't have that or we are deficient in that, we should take heed. We should take heed in this. That, you know, you have Bible study and you have people very, very much connected with the Bible and studying the Bible. But unfortunately, Muslims, we don't have this kind of, you know, attachment. A couple of reasons for that um, is, I think, in my opinion, that intimidation. You know, there's this intimidating feeling that we get when we're approaching the Qur'an al-Kareem, we feel like, oh, this is, this is too big, this is above me, right? Another reason is, is just the culture and the, the system that we have in the masajid. You know, I mentioned this, you know, a while ago. I was, I think, in Chicago. There are certain suburbs in Chicago. You have a church, like, literally on every... Um, on every like block, the old town suburbs of Chicago. You find a church on every block, literally. So there was one church that caught my eye. It was called Bible Study Church. The name of the church was actually Bible Study Church. And it's a very, very common thing. So our problem is, this wasn't existent in the Ummah. I'm not, this, is, this is a new phenomenon amongst Muslims. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not like, oh, you know, Christians have always had this and Muslims have it. No, it's the opposite. There were only few people in Christian history who could actually read the Bible. Throughout all of history, they could not read. Only the priests could read. And they were the ones who knew the Bible. And when you would go to church, this is when you would hear it. They would tell you, this is scripture. This is what it says. You said, okay, I take your word for it. The opposite was in the Muslim Ummah, where everybody could read. And everybody had access, literally in Jamia Al-Azhar, in Egypt, in Cairo, one of the greatest and oldest Islamic universities in the world, one of the oldest, that you could go, literally, a homeless person from the street could just go and sit in the dars of the Shaykh Al-Islam, in the highest category of knowledge and highest dars of hadith, just a homeless man could come right off of the street and he could come and sit in the dars in the public lesson of Hafiz ibn Hajar Asqalani. Ibn Hajar Asqalani, who had memorized over 100,000 ahadith with the Sanad. And how much, if you want to understand 100,000 ahadith, how much is it? Bukhari has in it about 6,000 to 7,000. Bukhari. And 5,000 of them are repeat, repetitive. 5,000 hadith in Bukhari are repetitive. 2,000 of them are actually hadith and then the other ones are repeated for different reasons 
Hafiz ibn Hajar memorized 100,000 hadith. Right? If I'm not mistaken, I think he did teach in Azhar. He had a pillar. They, see, like, if you have, you have these, like, these pillars, so a, a, a sheikh of a specific caliber would have a specific pillar. And he would sit in that pillar. That was his pillar. Imam al-Suyuti. He was a teacher of, in, in, in Azhar. He had his pillar. You would go and that was the pillar of Imam al-Suyuti. And he would teach. Literally any homeless person can come, sit, you know. And I'm talking about homeless is because like you didn't have to give, you didn't have to pay. You didn't have to be of a status in society. You didn't have to be from this particular family. You didn't have to be from this caste system. Anybody who's anyone could go and sit and if you follow and the, and the, and the, and the situation was is that if you don't understand what's going on you're not going to sit there wasting two, three hours this was, somebody's thinking why would somebody go and sit in an advanced class of Arabic grammar you, you wouldn't because what's the point of going and sitting a couple of doctors are sitting and talking about you know advanced issues of surgery or you know different methods of treatment and they're using all these terminologies, medical terminologies. Nobody would go and sit in that. This is a waste of time. You don't know what's, what they're talking about. You don't know their language. But my point is, it was the opposite in the Muslim Ummah. People had a connection with the Book of Allah Azza wa Random people knew random ayat of the Quran from everywhere. They would quote verses of the Quran to you. You know, men, women, children. There was a... There was a there was, a, there was a culture of learning and halaqatul ta'aleem. In the first century, Sayyidina Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, in the, in the Jamia Masjid of Sham, he had 200 halaqas in the Jamia Masjid of Sham. Abu Darda, who was the Muqri and Qari of Sham. 200 halaqas in the Masjid after Salatul Fajr. How would he do this? He would sit first. He would sit after Salatul Fajr. And till Ishraq, he would recite in a loud voice one juz of the Quran. And people would listen to him. I mean, imagine this amazing culture in Islam. Imagine our civilization. The Sahabi of Rasul in Sham. He would sit in a pillar and people would gather around and he would read in a loud voice as he heard from the mouth of the Prophet reciting. He would read one juz of Quran loudly and people would listen. They would just be around him. And then they would, after he would read that, they would disperse into 100 to 200 halaqas. Think about this, think about this. And in each halaqa was 10 to 20 people. Does that 2,000 people almost? 200 people? 2,000 people. If there's over 200, 200 halakas and 10 to 20 people, it's about 2,000 people there present in the Salatul Fajr. This was the dars, and it would continue on till Dhuhr, like this continuously. And for each 10 to 20 halakat of people in this masjid, which would go on and on, there would be one student, one selected student of Abu Darda who was Mujaz, who was given ijazah, and he would conduct the halaqa and correct the readings of these people who would read upon him. Amazing. Who made Bible study? Who made scripture study? Who had scripture study in the ummah? Not the Christians. So when I say that, don't get mad. Understand that there was something in this ummah that existed that was taken from us. That we left. And someone else implemented. That we need to bring back. So all of us should have a connection with the hadith. And I'm, I'm speaking of hadith, but it goes both ways. Hadith and Quran. Every single one of us should know. Like 40 of Imam al-Nawawi, 40, I think just recently, Khidr Jan sent me, uh, somebody sent us, a, I think on Facebook, on our Facebook page of Noor Publications, that we've completed the 40 hadith of, for children, 40 hadith of Imam Nawi, making it accessible so that children can learn it. Can you guys, I was like, this is amazing. This is exactly what we want. So I think it's a matter of our own complacency, our own culture. 
how we've created a culture of, you know, what we give importance to. Do you see what I'm saying? What is it that we give importance to as a community? And imams have a role in this. I think people, especially the Muslim community, we really, really like a lot that from the mimbar, people should talk to us about relevant issues. I feel like more of um, the West is like that compared to like if you go to England and London, the community is much more uh, in tune with their religion. Like if you go to uh, England, the Muslim community is much more connected than it is in the West. There's various reasons. I think there's, you know, you haven't seen the bad side of England as well. So you haven't seen the ghettos and the racism and, you know, certain places don't even have uh, even like a closet for women to pray inside of, literally. So, I mean, there is, there is the good side and there is the, the bad side as well. Um, I do believe, mashallah, but you, you have to understand, in England, the immigrant community were there almost from the early 1900s. Early 1900s, the first communities of Muslims in England, Right? First, I mean, in, from 1930s, 1940s, Muslims have been in England. We came here that, I think, earliest Muslims are maybe 70s. So we were very late start. I mean, this is a very young community. The Muslim community in America is very, very young. We're very much more immigrant. This new generation of actual English-speaking imams, this is a new phenomenon. This is a, this is a 90s and a 2000s thing. Dr. Sub, I don't know how you've been here for a while, but I'm just saying is this is not this is very new to have like you know I mean look at some of the celebrity imams Yasser Qadi and Noman Ali Khan and you know these guys that what are they these are all like late to like two thousands phenomenon can you imagine so the, the the point the point I'm trying to make is that um, things are changing. But we're a new community, and I agree with you. There are things in England that are just amazing. But that's because they had like a, you know, half a century head start on us. Half a century is a long time. You see what I'm saying? And we're relatively a, a new community. So my point is, the hadith of, the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, it focuses on all of those things that make up the fundamental aspects of the religion. Each hadith in this book you could take it as a rule to live by. This is one of the, like, teachings of Islam. Like if random non-Muslim were to ask you, what does Islam teach? What is Islam all about? You can literally give them, and th this is actually a commentary, but the actual Arba'in of Imam al-Nawi is probably about maybe 30 pages. You could give them this and say, here, this in encapsulates, this captures all the major teachings of Islam. And that would be enough. Really. That is the whole focus. That was the objective of Imam al-Nawawi. That he brings those hadith which are the themes, the major themes and objectives of what this deen is about. You can say almost like pillars of the deen. Things by which the deen stands on. So today, let's get straight to it. Nawas ibn Sam'an radiyallahu anhuma narrates from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Al-birru husnul khuluq Wal-ithmu ma haka fi nafsika Wa karihta an yattali alayhi al-nas Nawas ibn Sam'an radiyallahu narrates from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that piety when you say a person is a good person goodness and piety what is goodness and piety? this is a very beautiful prophetic definition when you say, when we say a person is a righteous person, a person is a good person, a person is a pious person, piety, righteousness, virtue, what does that mean? Does it mean that a, is he a, a person who helps other people? Is he a generous person? Is he somebody who's good to his parents? How, how, is it, how can we define righteous person? And this is a very beautiful definition from the Prophet. It's very, very deep. He says, Al-birru husnul khuluq. Righteousness is excellent character. We don't judge a person's righteousness 
solely because a person prays five times a day. And this is, a, this is a, a, another, how do you say, just like, you know, uh, we've become very lax in Quran, we've also become lax in some of our views of what is the meaning of piety. namaz namazi hai, to bas har se maaf hai. Har se maaf. Khush akhlaqi se maaf. Yani, sachai se maaf. Har cheez se wo maaf hai. Kyunki paanchon wakka namaz parta hai aur haji sahab hai. A person is a five times namazi and he prays five times a day and he went for hajj, he is forgiven. He doesn't have to do anything else in this world. He doesn't have to be nice to his neighbors. He doesn't have to be good to his wife. He doesn't have to be good to his relatives because in his mind, he has attained all of righteousness. In his mind, in his definition, righteousness is this, that I pray five times a day, I go to the masjid, and I have performed my hajj. I've done everything that needs to be done. This is the pinnacle of piety. True or false? That's why the question, what is the question that comes about from the people? They say, this guy prays five times a day, and he's cheating, and he's lying, and he's ripping off his, his customers. Isn't it? We always hear this. Why? Why does that happen? That, the, the, the problem with it, why it happens is because of his definition of what he considers what is piety. He has a wrong definition. He has a long pers- wrong perspective of what piety is. If he would have realized piety means treating other people good. Do unto others as you would want others to do unto you. Speak to others as you would want to be spoken to. Treat others as you would want to be treated. If a person understood this, this is the, this is what the, this is the prophetic definition. Now what about namaz and hajj? That is your relationship with Allah. That is something else. That's not bir. That's not bir. That's taqwa. That's a very interesting point that's mentioned here. Where it says, وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى They are very similar words and can become confusing. It's an interesting thing. How do you define bir? So it says, وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ وَالتَّقْوَى وَإِذَا جَمَعَ اللَّفْضَانِ فَهَذَا يَدُلُّ عَلَى التَّغَايُرِ إِذَا جَمَعَ الْلَفْضَيْنِ فَهَذَا يَدُلُّ عَلَى التَّغَايُرِ Ta'awanu, assist one another in bir and taqwa. If bir means taqwa and taqwa means bir, because sometimes they're used interchangeably. And bir is like neki, right? Piety, righteousness. But righteousness and piety is sometimes defined as taqwa. But here in this ayah, it's mentioned together showing that these have to be two opposite things, right? So what is taqwa? So it, it, beautiful what it mentions here. That فُسِّرَ الْبِرِّ بِمُعَامَلَةِ الْخَلْقِ بِالْإِحْسَانِ That bir is how you treat human beings. And taqwa is your dealing with Allah. Taqwa, right, comes from wiqaya. Wiqaya means guarding yourself. To protect yourself. So when you're, when you're, when you're obeying Allah, you're protecting yourself from His disobedience. And you're protecting yourself from his anger. That's why it's called taqwa. Coming from the root word of wiqaya. To protect, to guard, to avert. Wiqaya. Taqwa means to guard, to protect, to avert. Because you're averting Allah's disobedience. You're averting Allah's anger. You're protecting yourself from Allah's disobedience and displeasure. So taqwa means obeying Allah's commandments and staying away from his disobedience to protect yourself from his anger from his displeasure so then bir then would, would be what bir would be not related to allah azza in particular but to the creation of allah azza wa huququllah wa huququl ibad haqq of allah and haqq of the ibad so al birru husnul khuluq what a beautiful jami definition Beautiful. What is husnul khuluq? Though there's a there's a very beautiful definition what's attributed to Hassan Basri rahmatullahi of husnul khuluq, righteous character. Badlul ma'ruf wa talaqatul wajh wa kaful adha. 
And Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah also, he defines husnul khuluq in Riyadh al-Salihin with these words. What is excellent character? Excellent character is, consists of three things. Badl al-ma'roof. Badl, it means to expend, to spend. Badl al-ma'roof, always being open to do good. Every good, to, 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 be, to extend the good hand to every human being. This Badl al-ma'roof. Always looking for the opportunity to help people, to do good for people. Right? This is the first definition. Being a cheerful disposition. Not having an angry disposition. Not looking like, you know, uh, you want to kill somebody or you want to fight with somebody. Some people, you know, with their external disposition, they look like they always want to fight someone. This is not husnul khuluq. Right? A person with excellent character, their face and their whole demeanor and everything about them is something that attracts you to them. Right? They're not people who you want to run away from. They're, 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 their entire aura is cheerful. It's rahmah. Now we hear about certain people such, such as Umar ibn Khattab anhu. He was known to be a stern man. We know about other Sahaba, Khalid ibn Walid, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab. These were people that had a stern disposition. We know many of the great scholars of Islam. They were known to not be smiling all the time. They had a stern disposition. And this is what you call ghalabatul hal. They're human beings. Human beings have personalities. But generally, what we know about these individuals is that when then when they had to deal with people, they would not deal with everybody in a stern and harsh manner. Do you see what I'm saying? So just because a person might have a stern disposition or they're not smiling all the time, some of the awliya and some of the great scholars of Islam, yani so much azamat of Allah. And they said about Hassan Basri, Oh Hassan Basri, why do we see you always grief and sad? He says, after I know that Allah has created Jahannam, how can a person smile after knowing that? That there is such a creation that is known as Jahannam. And they say, Waki, Waki ibn Jarrah, he was a fat, laughing man. He was fat, and he would laugh a lot, and he would joke a lot. And he was one of the tabi'een, and he was the teacher of Abu Hanifa. Or Tita, he is the teacher of Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah. So somebody came and said, I heard about Waqi, he's the faqih. Waqi is the faqih. <laughs> so he said, I came to see who is this amazing scholar. He said, I came and I saw a fat man sitting in the corner of the masjid and he's laughing so hard. The whole masjid was, I was laughing. He said, I never regretted anything as much as I regretted going, traveling from so far away to come see you. You get, this is what, this is what they had as a, Understanding the scholar, you know, as a man of, he should be a man of, you know, a stern disposition, a man of seriousness. You know, you have to be serious, you have to have a, a stern disposition. And now, this guy, first and foremost, fat, and what, what, forgive me, this is like why I keep saying that word, you know, no offense to any fat people, but the point is like, they, you know, they were, many of the scholars were known of literally emaciating themselves. Yani, continuous, un unending fasting they would do. So you see a person, okay, first is like you're laughing, and then on top of that, you know, you're heavyweight in a time where, you know, where can food be found in those early generations? So these two things brings badgumani in a person's mind. So they ask him, why are you laughing so much? He said, how can I not be happy when Allah has given us iman? There is nothing greater in this universe than the iman that Allah has given us and knowledge and that Allah has brought me in this environment. Why should I not be happy and grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? I'm so happy. So any of this is a ghalabatul hal. So when we hear certain definitions, we don't need to immediately judge somebody that this person is too stern. I hear this from people. And another thing is, I personally believe that 
Many of the young generation, you haven't, and we haven't seen anything. I mean, you need to go in, you know, there are cities in the Muslim world, there are cities filled with scholars and huffaz. In the Muslim world, there are cities that I would say 99% of the population are Hafiz al-Quran. Cities, entire cities, entire villages. Everybody has memorized the Quran and Bukhari and Muslim and Riyadh al-Salihin. It's nothing for them. And, you know, we're, we're here in the, you know, living in the lap of luxury. We think that, you know, we're really smart people. No, we haven't seen anything. Really. Some of the, yani, in Mecca, Mukarram, and Medina, Munawar, I mean, some of the people that we've seen, they're just mind-boggling, these people. What knowledge and what, you know, piety and what taqwa Allah Ta'ala has given us. So, sometimes when we, you know, we quickly, we see one person, we have an imagination of what a scholar must be like. Oh, this scholar, he's like, he's too mean. You know, my, my youngest son, he always says this, you're mean. You're mean. Everything is mean. Like if you say something that he doesn't like, this is mean. That's mean. And this is the, I, I said, you're the typical American generation, like American kids growing up. Anything that doesn't like fit his like liking is mean. And I see like 20, 30-year-old guys, they'll see a scholar and he's a, a man of great character, but he just has a stern disposition. Oh, he's mean. I didn't like him. He's mean. Yeah, because he can't tell you like, you know, an Instagram quote or he can't like crack a joke with you. You know, that's not what a scholar does. So there's certain ghalaba that comes over a person. So cheerful disposition is that when you deal with a person, they have a, they have a, a very uh, kind disposition. It doesn't have to be a person like smiling all the time, laughing all the time. So kafful adha. And then the third one, badlul ma'roof. You should expend the good to or, towards everybody. You should have a cheerful disposition when dealing with people. And number three, kafful adha. You should withhold your harm from people. And this is a very beautiful definition. I think this is the most jame definition of good character. They're always looking to do good for people. Yani, you're not selfish. You care for others. Number two, you don't, you, you know, you don't, you're not a, you don't have a violent nature. You have a very kind nature. Even though, okay, your face might not be so pretty, but like, you know, if I deal with you, I feel very at ease. I feel very comfortable. It's easy going. Even though your nature, I mean, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he was a stern man. This is why I'm explaining. Because when they, when they would give, when they would give description of Sayyidina Umar, they wouldn't say that he has a cheerful disposition. He's smiling all the time. Or Khalid bin Walid. They're, these guys are soldiers. They're commanders. They're generals. They kill people. This is what they do. He can't be <laughs> laughing all the time. This guy's a soldier. He kills people. That's what he does. You know, if somebody would bother the Prophet ﷺ, Umar said, Ya Rasulullah, let me cut off his head. Cutting off his head was like cutting apples for them. He's not going to be sitting there <laughs> telling you know, jokes and he say, oh, see, he doesn't have good akhlaq. He has good akhlaq with who he needs to have good akhlaq with. He smiles with who he needs to smile with. And he deals with people nicely and with good character with who he needs to deal with. But these people, they had a specific demeanor which was for the protection of the Prophet And that is why we know the Prophet at many instances, the Bedouins would hurt the Prophet. The Bedouins would physically abuse and hurt and cause harm to the Prophet ﷺ because he was complete rahmah. And that's why you had people like Umar They were the protectors of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. And we need people like that as well. So don't judge anyone. I've seen the most, I mean, we've had many, many teachers and mashayikh. And when you look at them, I'm telling you, you look at them, you get scared. You don't have the courage to go and ask them a question. But wallahi, when you go to them, they say, I'm not, they hold your hand. And one of my teachers, very, very scary. He would, he would hold your hand and he would not let go of your hand and he would take you all the way to his house and until he didn't give you chai, he wouldn't send you back. Yes, I mean, subhanallah. That's the most excellent character. But you're like shaking because they have such a, like a, 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 a awesome the demeanor. And then you go, <clears throat> Ustadji, you know, can I have a question? Huh? Where did you? 
come with me. You take your hand, and all of a sudden you're like, what, is this the same person? Of course, this is what, excellent, this is what the prophet taught us. But like I said, this is that person's personality. So this does not mean that a person, a person who has a specific personality. My grandfather, he was like this. You know, my grandfather he didn't have like such a happy laughing. These are our elders. He's an 80-year-old man. He's not laughing all the time. But when you sit with him, he was the most kindest person with the smallest, smallest children, most gentle, most kind. But if you look at him, you get kind of intimidated. So don't judge a person just by their external looks. You'll find, you know, and don't judge a book by its cover, like it's saying. But these are what the definition of piety, al-birru husnul khuluq. Piety is excellent character. And this defines us. Piety is not just praying five times a day. Piety is not just going for hajj and saying, I am haji sahab, I have fulfilled my, my duty of piety. I have attained piety. No, piety is our dealing with others. Al-birru husnul khuluq. Wal-ithmu ma fi nafsika. And sin is that, subhanAllah, what a beautiful definition. And sin is that which bothers your heart. Sometimes we try to, you know, we want to see the fatwa. We have a fatwa kitab. We have to look, oh, is this a sin? We look at hadith or we look at ayah. You don't need, Allah Ta'ala has put a thermometer of sin in every human being. Not every Muslim, in every human being. When you are born, Allah has instilled something inside of every one of us. What is that called? Conscience. It's the conscience. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, La uqsimu bi yawmil qiyamah wa la uqsimu bin nafsil lawwamah Subhanallah. Allah swears by yawmil qiyamah. And Allah swears by nafsil lawwamah. Such a powerful thing that Allah is taking an oath. Allah is taking a qasam. I take an oath by this self-reproaching self the self-reproaching self the self-reproaching conscience we have soldiers coming back from wars with PTSD and we have soldiers coming back from wars becoming suicidal and then eventually wanting actually committing suicide a large percentage of soldiers suffering PTSD and then suicide and drugs. Why? What is this? Some of them don't believe in religion. Some of them don't believe in God. What is this? What is this? This turmoil. What is the internal turmoil that they're feeling? This internal turmoil is the gift that Allah has given every human being. Yes, the turmoil that you feel is a gift. It's a gift which is your thermometer that tells you it's too hot. This is too hot. You got to get out of here. This is not good. You cannot do this. I cannot live with myself. I have killed innocent people. I cannot live with myself. I have done wrong. I cannot live with myself. I have committed a sin. I feel in my heart that I have done wrong. That's why I'm depressed. That's why I'm suicidal. That's why I can't, I can't live with myself. I have this guilt. Who told him? Who cares? Who told you? The government told you to kill. I'm giving you money for it. What? Be comfortable. I'm paying you. I'm giving you money. You're going to get a medal. All the money they get. And they get a medal pin. They get a purple heart or a red heart or a green heart or whatever they get. Or they get a, you know, a com commando or a lieutenant or whatever. You get a promotion. It doesn't help. No matter what you tell that man, because the nafsil awama speaks louder than all the medals and all the money in the world. Deep down, that person's conscience is killing them. It's ripping them to pieces. This is a great gift of Allah Ta'ala. Do you know why? Because eventually that will make a person, if their mind is straight, to leave the wrong that they did. To make tawbah from the wrong that they did. 
to take the right path, to make amends that for all the wrong that I did, I will make up for the wrong that I did. I will have to speak out against this injustice that is happening. I can't hold it in any longer. Such a powerful word of the Prophet This is nafsi lawama. Lawama comes from the word malamat. Malamat. What is malamat? You know, blaming someone. Reproaching someone. Right? Accusing someone. Malamat is blaming somebody. And nafsi lawama means that nafs that blames you very much. Kasratul malamat. It's blaming you very, very much. Every minute, every time, every day. When we do something, I say something, I said, oh man, I wish I never said that. I look at something, I say, oh man, I wish I never looked at that. Isn't it? Almost probably 20, 30 times a day, we are doing malamat of ourselves. Are we or are we not? Is it true or not? <laughs> Almost 10, 15, 20, 30 times a day, we're saying, I wish I never said that. I wish I didn't do that. I wish I never looked there. I wish I didn't act like this. This is a blessing. This conscience is one of the signs of the existence of a creator. A lion doesn't have a conscience. He doesn't care that he took the life of a, a baby deer in front of its mother, does it? We're all, we're all, we came from monkeys, right? We're, that's all we are. According to them, we're just advanced monkeys that learn how to talk and do stuff, isn't it? We're just, a, we're just talking creatures. This is the literal definition. Who can explain, right, through evolutionary perspective, this conscience within a human being? They've attempted. They have, oh man, they have all this. Dr. Sab, you're probably aware of many, many discussions they've had. Many, many things that they, that, oh, this is one of our ways of survival. What do you mean survival? Conscience doesn't make you survive. Conscience kills you. I disagree with the neuroscientists that say we grew a conscience because this is part of survival. Because what is Darwinism? You look, keep Darwinism in adaptation of external right, creatures. The adaptation of external bodies, it makes sense. I understand. Don't bring it into the soul. Don't bring it into character and human beings. This is completely, this is endowed by God. There's a designer. Right? Just like you, a programmer programs something. We were programmed by a supreme designer who put this inside of us. It's like a microchip. Monkeys don't have conscience. <laughs> they'll, kill, they'll kill their own kids and eat them. And he'll sleep very comfortably after doing it. Cats and dogs and pigs, and they, they eat their own kids. And they'll sleep very comfortably. Why? Because his belly is full. <laughs> that's, all, that's, what it's, that's what its function is. But not a human being. Why? Nafsul lawama. I have programmed you. I put this microchip inside of you. I put it in you. So that it will take you to such an extent that if you can't get it under control and if you don't accept Islam and if you don't get help, you will take your own life. This is Darwinism. Darwinism is the survival of the fittest. The, 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 the point of ev Darwinian evolution is that everything that has brought us here is through surviving our... to adapt and to survive in our habitats. To adapt and to survive in our environments. True or false? I mean, basically, that's what Darwinian evolution tells us, that whatever we have attained up to now is because we have beaten all of the influences and things that, that, that can destroy us. So we fought that and now we have become this well-evolved creature through survival of the fittest. Okay? But this, <laughs> these things that are within us, it, 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 throws, a, it throws a wrench in the, in the whole uh, you know, machine of evolution because this person survived, this soldier. He killed people. He survived. He should come home and he should become the newest evolved creature of all because he survived. 
You know, his mind should become stronger. He should be a lion now. But you see these big, big guys, fat muscles, and they're like drinking themselves to death because you got a soul. Because you have a soul inside this body, you're not an animal. A lion could kill a thousand monkeys in one day and sleep comfortably. A lion could kill his own cubs, eat them, and not even bat an eye. It will not even bother him. Yes or no? I'm making stuff up. This is, this is a fact. But a human being with the biggest muscles in the world, right, he comes back and he's just a, he's just a mess. I can't live with myself. I can't talk to anybody because he has a soul. The soul wasn't meant to be an animal. The soul wasn't meant to be a murderer. The soul wasn't meant to commit sin. The soul wasn't created to take other lives. This soul was meant to, to, to serve a greater purpose, to show mercy, to show compassion, to help other human beings. And the person who does that, they live longer. Wait a minute, how do you live longer when you're giving your stuff to people? Isn't that against survival? Covetousness, covetousness is surviving. You understand covetousness? I'm greedy. I don't want to give anybody my food. This should make me live longer. But they say those who give their things to others, those who give their time to others, those who share with others, they live longer. That's against survival because you don't see creatures giving anything of theirs to others. I saw two squirrels in my backyard. They're probably even brothers. The one squirrel brother doesn't want to give it to the other brother. So we threw a couple of like walnuts. So he took the walnut. He's eating it. But he saw his brother coming. He took one and he put it in this. And then he took the other one and he put it here. And he took another one and he put it in his mouth. And it's... And he was like this, and he ran. And I said, subhanAllah, look at the covetousness that if you want to talk about Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest, that's what makes sense because covetousness is to, to survive. You have to survive. But why is it that a human being, when he holds for himself and he's greedy, he doesn't get what the person who gives and is generous and he spends of himself, they say, you will live longer. I mean, they have these... There's this amazing research in medical journals now that those who give and those who are generous to others and help the poor and give from their money and from their time, they live longer. What is that about? Because you're not a squirrel. Yeah. You're not a monkey. You're not a squirrel. You're not a dog. You're not a cat. You have something called the ruh. And in this ruh is the most amazing mechanism Nafsilawama. And here the Prophet is explaining. What is this nafsilawama? Wal nafsika. Sin. You don't need to ask a mufti about sin. Ask the nafsilawama. You have the biggest mufti sitting right here. Biggest mufti is sitting right here. Wal nafsik. Sin is that which bothers your heart. Is a soldier who's fighting a war that's justified. War is justified because your government told you to do it, right? So why, why when you come back you feel so guilty? Because it's not who justifies it for you. It's does this justify it? Does your heart justify this? Your government can justify a thousand things by lying. And they do lie. And they are lying. And they lie every day. But does this lie? This won't lie. This will not lie to you. This is the beautiful, this is the prophetic teachings. Allahu Akbar. Sin is that which scratches your heart. That's one sign. What's the other sign? And that you don't like that people should know about it. And that you don't, you don't like that people should know. I don't know why I'm talking about soldiers in the army today. One of the reasons is because I read about 
um, this article about why is it that so many soldiers, and it talked about the conscience. I had read actually an article a long time ago because they were speaking from a very, very non-religious perspective. But if it's, if it's religion, everybody knows, you know, thou shalt not kill. But we did away with the Ten Commandments, right? We don't believe in the Ten. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, from people who are uh, modernized American living in the West, and, you know, we've done away with that, right? So, thou shalt not kill doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't apply here. The government said it's justified. So, that, this was the whole article, and that's why I think I'm, I'm discussing this, that why this is a good point case. This is a good case to see why are they so depressed. You're doing something that's right. You're helping your country. You're keeping everybody safe. Why do I still feel this way? The Christians amongst them, they understand. Those are the ones who finally, and, and that's why I'm not talking just from an Islamic perspective. The article you know, was very, very... Um, general. It wasn't a religious article. Right? The Christians, they just go to the church and they say, you've committed a sin and you need to, you need to repent. So they go to their c confession, they confess, they get it all out, they ask God's forgiveness and so on and so forth. But I'm talking about from a general perspective. But other people, they, don't, they cannot overcome this. And many of them say, we don't talk to anybody about it. Dr. Saib Khudat Ghatman Shunidi, we cannot talk to anybody about it. This is one of the things that people who have committed crimes, they have a very difficult time talking about it. This is it right here. Because they know that I can't talk about such a heinous crime. You are afraid, you, you abhor, you dislike that people should come to know that you're a killer, that you took the lives of innocent people. I can't, I can't talk about that. One soldier told me, and then, you know, my kids always ask me what I do. I said, don't worry about what I do. My kids ask me about, you know, what is my job and what I do. I said, don't ask me about what I do. So, yeah, this is the reality. And I'm going, that, that, that article is kind of like, uh, in the back of my, my, my mind because I, my whole thought was this, but this applies to everything. Like, we don't know if something is good or bad. It's very easy. What does your heart tell you? The next hadith is interesting, and there's two hadith, and it's mentioned under the same chapter because both the meanings are the same, but in a different wording. Wabisa ibn Ma'abad, he says, I came to the Prophet and said, I the Prophet told me, immediately when he saw me, you came to ask about piety. So this was one of the miracles of the Prophet. Wabis ibn Ma'bad came, and as soon as the Prophet saw him, saw him, you have a question? He said, yes. He said, I know what you came to ask. You came to ask about what is piety and what is sin. He said, yes. So he said, let me tell you. Istafti qalbak. Ask your heart. Albirru matma'annat ilayhi nafs Good and righteousness is what your heart feels comfortable. Goodness is your heart feels very much comfortable. Right? You know when you're passing by a homeless person and you give them something? Nobody at that moment, actually you would want people to see you. When you're there and you give some food to a poor man, you say, is there anybody seeing me? Or when you're praying namaz and... You're like, is there anyone seeing me? I wish somebody could see me right now. Isn't it? Your, your heart wants that other people... You know, this is a very good thing because it's a good thing. Because it's a righteous thing. Right? And sin is that which bothers your conscience and your heart feels hesitant about it. Ah, I don't know. I don't think I can do this. Nah, this is not good. You feel hesitant. Even if the people give you fatwa. Even if the, right? Another hadith says, ask the fatwa from your heart, even if the muftis give you the fatwa. I don't know. The muftis can say a hundred things, but 
And when you and when your nafs says that, if the if the mufti were to say whatever he says, leave that. That's fatwa. But what your heart tells you is taqwa. What the mufti says is fatwa. Some people might need that fatwa. Some people might be in a situation where they need a fatwa. But you, what the heart tells you is not fatwa, it's taqwa. And taqwa is the way that you deal with, your, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and tread the path of deen. How you tread Islam is with taqwa, not with fatwa. Fatwa is in only difficult, tight situations where you don't know what to do. You're in hajj, you're in ihram, you did something, you made a mistake, now you're asking for a fatwa. That's okay. My point is it's okay because you're in a predicament. You're traveling, right? You don't have water. And you know, what do I do you know, in this situation? Okay, you can do this or you can do that. That's fine. Get a fatwa at that time. You see what I'm saying? You have no way out or you're in a predicament. You ask about a fatwa. But now on daily living, we don't, we don't conduct our relationship with Allah based on looking for the leeway. We base our relationship with Allah with what our heart tells us. Because our heart was given to us by Allah. The heart is our navigation. So many people accept Islam because it says, my heart just guided me. I just knew that this is the truth. I knew that this is the right thing. So this is an amazing hadith. And you can see when we talk about every hadith in this book is a principle, fundamental point in Islam. We can see how fundamental these is, this is. This actually teaches us how we deal with people and how we deal with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our relationship. That our relationship with Him should be, it's navigated by the heart. What you feel uncomfortable here, most likely He is not happy with it. And what you feel, this is the navigating and this is one of the signs of the existence of a Creator. I think some research, Dr. Saab, there should be some research done about this. This is very profound. These are things that they have no answer. Where does the conscience come from? Where did the conscience pop up in Darwinian revolution? Where did that pop up from? How does that have anything to do with the survival of the fittest? Actually, it's the opposite. Because when you have a conscience, you will eventually slowly kill yourself. You will either kill yourself mentally, you'll be, have a nervous breakdown, you have cardiac arrest, you have a stroke because you're so much tension and stress. It happens. It's the conscience. Where did this come in, 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 in survival of the fittest? May Allah Ta'ala give us the tawfiq to understand what has been said.